It's chaos. It's a different type of Sunday scary. It's your newest obsession. It's Dirty Driving, a Formula One podcast. We're the Hornsby sisters. I'm Katie. And I'm Megan. Hello, hello. Hello, everyone. This week, we are obviously, and thank goodness, resting after a crazy Max Verstappen dominant triple header. So obviously, we didn't have a race this weekend. So you know what that means. That means we're deep diving. We're just headfirst into another team. And this week, I'm very, very, very excited to talk about AlphaTauri. Pierre Gasly, I almost did it. I almost did it. I didn't. We're going to wait. We're going to wait. I almost did it. Sorry. Almost really early. I got too excited. And Yuki Sonoda or Giuseppe Yuki. (laughs) If you know that video, you know what I just said. If not, look up Giuseppe Yuki. My favorite video of Yuki and Pierre. (laughs) I can't even like get it out. It's so funny. Yeah, I... Can't believe we've waited this long to talk about AlphaTauri. They're our ninth team. We've only got Haas left after this. And I think what I am most excited to talk about is our main topic, which I'm not going to say now because, yeah, I want to keep it a little bit of a secret until we get to it. Uh, But there's just like an interesting thing happening with AlphaTauri that then we could see more in the future. Um, they're a cool team. Obviously, I love Pierre. Yuki is growing on me. Look, I don't know. Yuki, Yuki and, and I have I a, have a battling I, relationship. It's battling. That's a good way to put it, Megan. It's a battling. No, right? I can tell you exactly why we waited because we have – Every time we've sat down to talk about which team is next, we've been like, let's wait on AlphaTauri. Let's wait. Let's wait until after silly season. I'm not convinced. Both of us were not convinced that the duo was going to see 2023 season. And while we finally are here to do the episode, we still don't actually have the answers. But I'm fairly confident that it will not be a Pierre Gasly and Yuki Tsunoda duo next year. I I mean – the writing is on the wall. And if you're not reading the wall, what are you doing? What what are you doing? Because we all know that something is up Pierre's sleeve for next year. Something is happening. He may be leaving the Red Bull family, which, you know, well, he would be leaving the Red Bull family, which I'm excited to see. Oh, I have been waiting for him to get out of the clutches of Senator Palpatine since the whole debacle, the dumpster fire. The dumpster fire, which we will definitely I will get, to. get into. But before we can get into this episode, Katie, we really, we need to talk about and just get it out at the top before we make all the jokes throughout the episode. I feel like we just lay all the cards out there. We need to begin with the man, the myth, the social media legend, Pierre Gasly. Oh, yeah. Don't even get me started. This man invented F1 photo dumps. He was the only one dumping mass collections of photos. And now Lewis dumps. Now, um... Yuki dumps, like everyone's out here dumping photos. And I'm like, that's the Pierre Gasly effect. 
Okay. But before that, I think Pierre Gasly invented the F1 thirst trap on social media. Or maybe, wait, I take that back. He may not have invented it because Lewis was throwing up some exercise thirst traps long ago. But I think Pierre Gasly might have perfected the right amount of, I didn't try, but I tried. Yeah, like. Perfect image of me. Yes. One that is coming to mind is the 2022 summer break photo dump where we had that artfully in the window reflection of him in his bathing suit. Um, Like, he just knows what he's doing. Oh, he knows what he's doing? And and he doesn't care that that it's just all out there for all for for everyone to not only see but to enjoy. And if you don't enjoy it, you're clearly doing something wrong. Well, and then we can't forget the storm, the absolute storm that has happened this season with Pierre Gasly liking everyone's Instagram the second it gets posted. Like I'm pretty sure he's in the car on Sunday liking Instagram posts. No, he has to have a team. There's got to be a we need the the wizard of oz behind Pierre Gasly to come out of the shadows and say, "I am the person that likes more Pierre Gasly." Because how can the man who's supposed to be practicing, preparing, doing his coordination activities Insert yeah. hand motions here for the race. But the man is out here liking every Instagram photo that shows up. Every single goddamn one. Even some questionable Instagram posts, which brings us to Megan. I'll let you deliver this one. I will okay, let you deliver look, this one. Look, Pierre Gasly, the liked, okay, the thirst traps, one thing. Perfecting it, another thing. Liking questionable things, another thing. Liking everybody's things, a fourth thing. The man came uncaged last weekend. I I mean, he was just like. Absolutely uncaged. I'm pulling it up now if you want me to read the actual Instagram post. Oh, I have it. You've got it ready to go. This all began with him tweeting, does anybody know what position I start in tomorrow? And someone responding saying missionary. Then we get to the Monza dump. Where, at Tom Bloomquist, comments, you look like a missionary kind of guy. To which Pierre Gasly responds with a dog emoji. <laughs> yes, that's right. You you saw it on the internet. You heard it here second. Pierre Gasly's favorite position is clearly doggy. And you know what? To which Roscoe. Lewis Hamilton's dog account, Roscoe Loves Coco, responded at Pierre Gasly, dot, dot, dot. And that, my friends, the internet, the F1 Instagram world broke in half. In half. No, like Instagram and Twitter were down. I was mentally and physically like, I need to take a seven. I, I, need, I need to take a personal day. I need to think about these things. And like All of them. I'll be the first to say it. I will be the first to say it. Who doesn't want to picture Pierre? <laughs> Megan's. I eyes. hope my mom is right. Mom, <laughs> I hope you're listening. 
<laughs> I hope you're listening, Mom. No, like, he has now painted a photo for all of us. Thank you, Uncle Pierre. Mark, this one's for you. <laughs> Thank you, Pierre. That's what I'll leave it at. I Thank God have, Dad doesn't listen to these episodes. I'm literally just digging myself into a hole at this point. But I'll be the first to say it. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you for letting us in to your sex life and giving us a visual. That's all I've got to say. And Lewis Hamilton, I know you're behind your dog's account. Thank you for responding to this because that was I'll the never I- icing on the cake I never knew I needed. And I will never look at the dog emoji the same way. No, I will literally always think of Pierre Gasly. Yeah. Every time you use the dog emoji, you're picturing Pierre and yeah. Doggy. Okay. I mean, the man, the myth, the legend, the social media icon, the social media icon that is Pierre Gasly. Thank you for gracing the internet and all F1 fans with an inside look on your personal life. We appreciate it. We thank you. And um, I now can say that is the most phenomenal social media thing that's happened at F1 this year. I, I thought oh, that I thought first the Oscar Piastri thing was going to be great. Then I thought the Alex Albon response, like mimicking Oscar Piastri, was going to be the moment of the year. Nope, sorry, Pierre Gasly, he won. Pierre wins. Pierre wins it all. Sorry, Lewis, you're not going to be our <laughs> social media god of the year. It's Pierre Gasly. No. We're giving it to Pierre. Pierre has just leveled up and i think that's the last bit i can say on this without getting myself in trouble further trouble and with that let me remind mom to just skip to this just hey yeah. watch listen to the intro skip about four minutes listen to katie talk about yuki you don't need to hear those four minutes <laughs> no which i'm not gonna put words into her mouth but if she knew what was going on, I'm sure she would feel the same way that all of us felt. So that's fine. Sorry, mom. Again, I'm digging the hole. Let's talk about She'd Yuki. She'd probably be into it. She. <laughs> okay. Let's talk. <laughs> We're talking about Yuki. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So Yuki Sonoda. Let's get into him. Um, in 2010, he joined the JAF Junior Karting Championship. This is where he got his official racing start before moving to the regional class in 2013 and the national class in 2014. So the thing about Yuki is he's a newer driver. Obviously, this is only his second year in Formula One. So not only are we still seeing how well he performs and seeing how well of a team player he is and how well of a follower of his workout regimen he is. Thank you, Drive to Survive. But there's not a ton of background on Yuki Tsunoda that's out there for the public to research. Uh, So we know he got his racing start, and quickly after that, he started his path to F1. So we jump forward a couple of years. In 2016, he graduated from Honda Suzuki's Circuit Racing School in the Advanced Formula class and became a member of the Honda Formula Dream Project, which is basically a group of drivers that are sponsored to continue racing by Honda. He made his debut in single-seaters in the F4 Japanese Championship in a one-off event with Tsukina Racing Team. He claimed his first podium was second 
in the first race and finished fourth in the second race. In 2017, he had his first full season racing in the F4 Japanese Championship while also racing in the Regional East Series of the JAF F4 Japanese Championship. So Yuki was a busy boy. He was racing all over the place and actually won the title of Regional Championship for the JAF F4 Japanese Championship while finishing third in the National Championship. So continued to race as a part of the Honda Formula Dream project team and claimed the title with seven wins in 2018. Uh, I think Yuki's is probably the most different path than anyone else that I can think of that we've you know talked about thus far and any other driver as being sponsored in a similar light as like a junior driver program, but... Um, different as it is separate from the F1 world, if that is clear. I'm not sure if that's clear um, because Honda doesn't have a team in F1 is basically what I'm trying to express. In 2019, he raced with Gender Motorsport and the FAA F3 Championship. So that's kind of where he made his way over into more of the Formula One regular path. He finished ninth with three podiums and a win and also competed in the motor park, also competed for motor park in the Euro Formula Open Championship. He took second place finish at Paul Ricard, third place finish at Pau, and a maiden victory at Hockenheim. In 2020, which feels like not that long ago, it's crazy that they're so young, even though they're not. He joined Carlin. Dude, Yuki was born in 2000. 2000. Yuki I was, was born six. in 2000. When I really put that mental math together, it is painful. So in 2020, when he's 20 years old and racing in F2, I'm like, what? It, you're right. It, it, like, it doesn't it's work. It's a mind. It, it messes with my mind that like just in 2020 – he was in F2 and made his way up to F1. And you've got, you know, Lewis, who has been there forever. Fernando, who's been there forever. Kimi Raikkonen just retired. Like, there's these generational chunks of drivers. And it's just, like, mind-blowing to try to put the timeline in your head of who belongs where. So, anyway. He joined Carlin to race FIA Formula 2 Championship. He took three wins, four poles, seven podiums, and finished third in the championship with 200 points. So not a bad selection, not a bad choice to have him move up to Formula 1. It just worked out. Again, he was able to be sponsored by Honda for all those years, and Red Bull and Honda obviously have a relationship now with the engines. and so. The progression to join AlphaTauri made sense. And it was actually in 2021, he replaced Daniel Kvyat and partnered with Pierre Gasly, which I think it was time for Daniel Kvyat to be done in Formula One. He had his time. He showed us what he could and could not do. And it was time for a rookie to come in and take his place and show us what he could do. So in the season opener, he finished ninth. And Ross Braun hailed Yuki as Formula One's best rookie for years. So I think that's just, I think that shows, it's a bold statement. It was a a bold statement. And I don't know if I fully agree with that statement. 
especially after what we've now seen in Drive to Survive. We saw a peek into Yuki's life outside of the track. If you haven't watched it, I'm not going to go into detail. Feel free to go watch the episode. But we basically they paint learned- him as lazy. They I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt. Thank you. I'm going to say they paint him as lazy. They paint him as a lazy SOB who doesn't want to get off his ass. His apartment is a mess. They move him closer. They put him on a regiment. They get him in line. And I think the thing with Yuki and that statement that Ross Braun made is, I think he could be F1's best rookie for years. Had he, should he, does he now, would he ever have the discipline? to be on a regiment and then show up and actually be a little bit more ready and prepared to race. So let's talk about this year. He qualified 16th and finished eighth at the season opener. And he has really only outperformed Gasly once at Emilia Romagna finishing seventh. And he hailed it as the best race of his F1 career thus far. Currently in the championship, he sits at 16th with 11 points. And I thought about not bringing this up again, but I'll bring it up again. He did win our most embarrassing moment of the year. We were there for it live in Canada. Just absolutely ate shit, ran off the track, coming out of the pits. And um, yeah, so, you know, I think the thing with Yuki and how I'll close up my time talking about him is the jury is still out for me. I can't quite figure out if he should have a seat, if he shouldn't have a seat, if he's lazy and not willing to put the effort in and the work in, then why not replace him with someone else who might? And I think that's where it's like, where's the grit? Where's the determination? You've painted him as lazy. Maybe that's not 100% fully accurate, but I just feel like there are so many drivers out there who would show up and work every day the hardest they possibly could to be the best that they possibly can, and I don't get that energy from Yuki. No, I don't either. I I definitely think categorizing him as the jury is still out is really the only way. I think it is a bold I, – I mean, when I say it's a bold statement from Ross Bond, I g- genuinely think that that's pretty bold um, to just come out there and be like, rookie year, which is the best we've seen in years. Well, I don't know if I feel that energy. Especially after – and like I get in the rookie pool last year, that statement makes – Made sense. Made sense. I mean, you had Nikita and you had Mick and – now you've got Guan Yu who's doing outperforming him, doing a phenomenal job, and thank you, Megan, outperforming Yuki. So, bold statement maybe not the best rookie for years, but maybe the best rookie for that year. Last year. Last year. Well, and with that, we're going to go to another driver who also replaced Daniel Kvyat at one point. But before we get into Pierre Gasly, I'd just like to circle back to what we previously talked about. I did text our mother and say, um, Mom, you're going to want to listen to the new episode. She was like, do I have a starring role? I was like, yes, get ready. So She, uh, said, she said, my goodness, this is exciting. So uh, she, 
She also <laughs> said, should I get myself some additional security? Yeah, mom, we'll hire you a bodyguard for Pierre Gasly's doggy. <laughs> I'm done. Moving on. Let's talk about Pierre Gasly. Uh, um, so Pierre Gasly and another kind of time warp, like Katie was mentioning about 2020. I, this also feels really weirdly a long time ago and at the same time very recent. But he's been in Formula One since 2017 when he was called up to replace Daniel Kvyat at two Formula One races for Scuderia Taro Rosso. But he actually ended up finishing out that season with the Scuderia when Daniel Kvyat was like officially demoted. And, you know, if we could talk about a driver who's just taken a lot of L's, I feel like Kvyat's been demoted more than any other driver in recent years. But I think it was a it was a good choice. In the end, I think it was a good choice. I definitely think that Kvyat has time has come to an end multiple times and he kept giving opportunities. But ultimately in 2017, it was Pierre Gasly that stepped into his shoes at Toro Rosso. Since then, Pierre has three podiums. He has 102 Grand Prix starts, which blows my mind as well. And his best result is the victory and Monza, which I did watch this weekend to prepare myself for this episode and get myself in the mindset of a everything that happened in 2020 Monza, because I feel like 2021 Monza really just like 2020 was just like so buried after everything that happened last year that I wanted to go back and really memorialize that race. It was a great race. And the podium celebration with Pierre Gasly really did have me in tears. He is incredible. He got his start in motorsport before he was born. Motorsport has always been an option, always been a thing in the Gasly lifestyle for Pierre. His father used to be involved in a variety of motorsport, and his grandfather before that used to kart. And Pierre grew up in Roussanne, which is famous for the racetrack that hosted the French Grand Prix back in the 1960s. So it was like literally in his environment, in his blood, in his water, everywhere around him was motorsport. He got his official start, though, after he was spending time at the kart track watching his older brothers. He started at like the age of two watching them karting and they would take him to all of the like regional racetracks and get him involved. And so, again, like this is already ingrained in him from being essentially a toddler. So eventually, four years later, after he started hanging out with his older brothers at the track, he would get his start in karting and he would spend up until 2010 in karting all around France internationally in the KF3 category. He was also um, in the KIC FIA European Championship where he took P2 in 2010. So started off straight into karting, was very successful in karting, just like basically every other story in the path of drivers. If you're successful in karting, that's the first kind of big leap. Then in 2011, he moves to French F4, which is where he got his first taste of single-seater racing. He was the youngest driver on the grid, and he ultimately finished P3 in the championship. That is important, though. His ability to, A, in his first year, be the youngest on the grid, but then to be so successful allowed for him to be able to get the financial support and backing he needed to get into Formula Renault 2.0 in the following year, which... He was in for two years, 2012 and 2013. And 2013, he would win the title. He is the youngest driver to ever win Formula Renault at the time. I don't think anyone has beaten him on that statistic either, but don't quote me on it. 
Then he would spend 2013. Oh, he's, I said that. He spent that in Formula Renault 2.0. Then in 2014, this is interesting. I thought this was clever because I didn't realize how close this... It always... Whenever I read these stories, I'm like, wow, they all really do overlap in their early careers. So in 2014, he was in the Formula Renault 3.5 series and he finished P2 behind Carlos Sainz. That is the same year that he was hired as a Red Bull Junior driver and part of the Red Bull Junior driver program. Then he spent two years in the GP2 series. He won the 2016 championship. He won it in the final round at Abu Dhabi where he beat Giovinazzi. Again, every time I talk about their history, I know they all had to be in these early stages together, but it's just kind of like, wow, they really all were have been racing against each other for years. Then he went to 2017. He went to Super Formula where he won two races and he actually ended point. Five points. We know how we hate 0.5 points on this podcast back from the championship. So incredible, incredible path to F1 filled with competing against the men that he would drive against in F1. So like I said earlier in 2017, he would be called up to replace Daniel Kvyat for Toro Rosso. In 2018, he was again with Toro Rosso where he had a very impressive year featuring a P4 at Bahrain. But ultimately, throughout that year, he had multiple impressive performances that culminated in him getting a reputation of being like a driver who could always be at the right place on the track at the right time and proved his ability. Like it it was a track record of great experiences on track, great driving record, great racecraft that allowed him to be someone who could be a thought in Senator Palpatine and Christian Horner's mind that he could make it on the A-team, which would happen in 2019. He would move to Red Bull to replace Daniel Ricciardo, who would leave Red Bull to go to Renault. And this is the part of my utter heartbreak. So he moves to Red Bull and immediately is cast in the light of comparison against Max Verstappen. And while Max is not one of my favorite people to talk about, I you cannot diminish his accolades once he joined F1. So as Pierre Gasly joins Red Bull, he is immediately from the onset compared to Max. And that is the beginning of the end, essentially. Throughout the beginning of the season, he is just painted in this very unfavorable light because Red Bull, I think, thought he was going to step up and be like Max 2.0 when that was never an option. We all knew that. They thought he was going to be someone who could do what Max did when really I think they were looking for a wingman. But nonetheless, constantly compared to Max, and that led to him being sent back to Toro Rosso at the summer break after, um, no, before the Belgian Grand Prix. Who would replace him? Alex Albon, who we talked about in the Williams episode. If you want to talk about, if you want to hear about Al- Albon's past, go listen to that deep dive. You'll get a whole understanding of his trauma with Red Bull as well. (laughs) Nonetheless, Pierre gets sent back to Toro Rosso because he just wasn't putting up the numbers, the results that Max did when he joined Red Bull. He didn't win his first race out. And when you look at the data of that year, it makes a lot of sense. I, I can understand what the thought process was, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense considering that was a year of Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton domination. 
But nonetheless, Max Verstappen at points really did outpace him. Like he was lapped by Verstappen at Hungary. At the summer break, Verstappen had one pole. He had 181 points. He had two wins and five podiums compared to Gasly, who was struggling. So on paper, I get it. In reality, I don't think they were thinking beyond this very like narrow view. They they weren't playing the long game. Like no, that would have been a, a car that he wasn't comfortable with yet. And that would have been a great year with Mercedes being so dominant and Lewis Hamilton being so dominant. It would have been the year to keep it as a building year and let Pierre just figure it out. And I think at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure I've said this before, but Christian Horner let Pierre Gasly down. Absolutely. They should have let him finish out the year. I fully believe he should have finished the year. I agree. Because, so in 2019, he goes to Toro Rosso and then he bounces back after the summer break. In only true Pierre Gasly fashion, really. He took a P2 in Brazil. He became the youngest Frenchman to stand on a F1 podium. And then over the the nine races after the summer break, he scored as many points as his teammate Kvyat did all year. So clearly he had the ability, but I think there was just, he didn't feel comfortable at Red Bull. For whatever reason, he struggled in the first half, but he bounced back. So then we go into 2020. Now the team is rebranded. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it's rebranded. It's Alpha Tari. He takes his maiden win at the home race in Monza. He's the first victory for a French driver since Oliver Panis in the 1996 Monaco Grand Prix. He finished the season P10. He had he was 32 points ahead of Kvyat. And there's a lot of rumors at the end of the year that he's going to return to Red Bull because Albon had finished P15. Franz Toss was like, no, no. Franz Toss was probably like, keep, keep him here. You take somebody else, Red Bull. Take somebody else. We're going to keep him here because he's found success here. Am I happy for Pierre? Probably at the end of the day, not going back to Red Bull was a good move. I don't know in the moment if that felt bad or not. But then 2021, AlphaTauri rolls around his season with them. He scored 110 of the team's 142 points. He was partnered with Sonoda. He very clearly had a, a very impressive year last year. I really enjoyed watching Pierre race last year. And then we get to this year. So 2022 has been definitely a tougher year for the team. I don't think that it has broken his spirit. Clearly not because he's living his best social media lifestyle. But ultimately, he has struggled for kind of two reasons. One, the qualifying pace has not been there. And the teams in the midfield, backfield have definitely taken a step forward. And AlphaTauri has to kind of not only take a step forward, but also take a leap forward if they want to stay where they were previously. Overall, though, it's not terrible if you look at his comparison to Yuki Tsunoda. The car's performance isn't there, but in comparison to his teammate, he's definitely had a great beginning of 2022. Can't even say beginning anymore, can we? Like 75% of the season is over. Yeah, we He's had a great three quarters of a quarters. season. Considering the pace of the car. I'm going to say great in context of what the car can do. We'll go with that. So six times he's been to Q3, but unfortunately five times he hasn't gotten out of Q1. So 
the car giveth and the car taketh. <laughs> it's a balance. <laughs> I feel like that's how it is about Mercedes. It giveth, but more often it taketh. But if you look at his race results compared to, you know, some of those questionable qualifying performances, he's been in the top 10 eight times. Not awful. He has unfortunately had three DNFs, Bahrain, Miami, and Great Britain. But he has outqualified his teammate six or nine out of the 16 times. So comparatively, I think he is definitely still an underrated driver on the grid that deserves to potentially be on a better team than AlphaTauri. And I would love to see his performance on a better team than AlphaTauri without the pressure of a Red Bull existence and being a wingman to Max Verstappen. Which leads me to the newest rumor, which I was hoping that we could say was confirmed, but is yet to be at the time of this recording on Sunday night. So if it is on Monday, sorry, I'm not sorry. But the rumor is that Pierre Gasly is headed to Alpine to take the spot of Fernando Alonso and to replace him is not only the one I'm so proud of him in his last performance at Monza, it's Nick DeVeers, who is 27 years old. Holmeslake really? is old. Is, is, is ancient. Old. And clear – oh, new news. Sorry, don't mean to bring this up. This isn't about Nick DeVeers, but we I just mentioned him. Apparently this week, Lewis Hamilton said in an interview that his dad, Anthony Hamilton, tried to get DeVeers a spot in F1 like years ago. Yeah. So sidebar, something else to discuss. But nonetheless, there's a good chance that it will be a Nick DeVeers Sonoda lineup at Alphatari, and it will be an Ocon – Gasly lineup at Alpine. So it'll be a French team with two French drivers. Which is going to be crazy. So the last little nugget of this whole story, the rumor mill, the rumor mill is that Senator Palpatine was spotted in Austria on Friday with De Veers. Feels like a clue mystery. Senator Palpatine in an Austrian restaurant with De Veers discussing a contract potentially. You know, I love clue. So what do you think about this move katie are you excited because clearly i am yeah you know i i ah pierre i love him i love pierre i have an alphatari shirt i got it because of pierre i have a pierre shirt because i love pierre i just love him so much and he deserves so much more than what he's been given i think this year he's you know had his ups he's had his downs i just want him to have a fresh start on a new team, not tied to Red Bull, not tied to the shitty past, not tied to Christian Horner, Senator Palpatine, any of it. I want him to go to Alpine, partner with Esteban Ocon, and I want the two of them to duel all season long. I almost – apparently they don't get along, supposedly. They, like, didn't get along in Cardine, right? I'm, That's years I'm, ago. Years ago. But I would love to see them duke it out and and see who's going to be on top at the end of the season because Esteban Ocon has been showing us race after great race this season that he is capable of great performances. So I I'm excited about wheel it. Wheel to wheel with both of them. Both I want to see the Fernando Alonso Ocon battles of this year, next year, but it's Gasly and Ocon. Yeah, I cannot wait. I hope this rumor it. I hope this rumor 
sends tomorrow and here we are on Tuesday, everyone's listening to it and they know that he's going to be there. Uh, but also the Nick DeVeers, that's news to me. Um, thank you for telling me about that. I did I not mean, see that. So that's exciting. That they had dinner in Austria. I saw it on Twitter. I don't know if it's true. It was like – the tweet honestly read like Gossip Girl. I'll be honest. The tweet read like Gossip Girl. Helmet Marco seen at dinner with DeVeers in Austria. And I was like, oh, no. This could oh, be no. great. This, that – The only thing I'm sad about is, does this mean that Senator Palpatine's got his fingers in DeVere's career? Because I don't like that. I don't like that. I'd prefer. But also, if this is an opportunity for DeVere's to potentially end up at Red Bull in the future, that's better. Because I think there's very clear, like, a pipeline for Mercedes in the future that DeVere's isn't a part of. I, I mean, I, truthfully... So if this is an opportunity for him to be on the grid for a couple of years, I'm really happy for him. I like his racing. I loved watching him. I, I swear the intern was so tired of me talking about DeVere's on Sunday, last Sunday. He was just like, shut the fuck up. You've talked about how great of a performance he had. Like, get the fuck over it. <laughs> he did have a great performance, and it deserves to be spoken about. They're still posting photos of him, and I'm, like, eating them up. Not Absolutely even mad about them it. Up. Not mad about it at all. They posted, like – this cute thing. I know we're totally sidetracked right now, but they posted this like cute thing about what it takes to get a new driver ready to go for the weekend. And there were some quotes from other members on the team and it, it, it's just all around cute. I love it. I'm loving it. And I do love that. I, I do love the, the slight like miracle moment of it where it's like, Hey, he had 23 minutes running an FP3 had a great qualifying performance. If if not for one mistake, he probably would have gotten into Q3. And then he goes out and basically holds positions. He ends up, he started P8, ends up P9. I would say, considering the fact that Hamilton and Sainz passed him, he held position. <laughs> that to me, that's, I, I mean, I thought it was great. I'm happy for him. My heart. Next year, we'll be talking about Nick DeVere's and the Alphatari episode. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. This podcast is brought to you by Racing Thread, Formula One clothing for any occasion. Their clothing features subtle, evocative, embroidered designs for your favorite F1 moments. From Ricardo's Monza Shoei to Sebastian's Australian scooter ride. From Lewis's Brazilian comeback to Carlando's round of golf. Whether you're out to dinner with friends, watching the race at home, or cheering in the grandstands. Gone are the embarrassing sponsor logos. Instead, Racing Thread is F1 clothing you are comfortable wearing anywhere. Right now, Dirty Driving listeners can get 15% off Racing Thread's entire range of t-shirts, sweatshirts, and polos using the code DIRTYDRIVING. That's Dirty Driving, all capitals, no spaces, for 15% off their entire clothing range. Head over to RacingThread.com to shop F1 Racewear for anywhere. Okay, with that, I am going to jump into a brief team history of AlphaTauri. And we are so blessed. I was so blessed to choose this team to deep dive on. Uh, and we're just, all of us are blessed because AlphaTauri slash Toro Rosso has a pretty short, concise, not that long of a history. So I figured we would, you know, walk through it. And unlike our other teams where we focus on like 
a segment of their history, we're going to just, we're going to breeze through it. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to talk about how they've been and where they've going and all of the things. And I'm not saying that right, but here we go. Let's just note that she tooted her own horn saying, how lucky am I that I got, <laughs> I picked Alphatari. I think this is one of I the did. first teams that you were like, I'll take Alphatari. I volunteer. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I volunteer. I will take Alphatari. They've got, it's an interesting history. Uh, there's two kind of things we're going to talk about. And I'm, again, I'm not going to share the main topic section just yet because I want you guys to hold on with me two, two. for it. I'm tooting your horn for you. Thank you. Toot, toot. But before we chat about that, we really need to talk about the history and we need to talk about whether AlphaTauri is a junior team or a sister team. All right. So it all started in 2005 when Paul Stoddard of Minardi made it very clear that if he found the right buyer, he was going to sell his team. Red Bull decided it was time to bulk up and purchase the team, setting it up as their second team, as a place that they can promote their drivers that had risen or, quote-unquote, graduated from their young driver program. So initially, that sounds like, okay, they're a junior team. We're growing, we're harvesting, we're creating drivers to be on the dominant adult Red Bull team. It sounds I know, like AAA baseball. Like if you're if you're an American baseball fan, like it literally sounds like to the Cardinals what the Memphis Redbirds are. Are they the yep. Memphis Redbirds? Maybe they're the Springfield. Card- I don't know. They're junior. That just made me look like an idiot. Whatever. It's their junior team. <laughs> I tried really hard to know baseball things. You did. It's okay. I should have just gone with it. We're going to forgive you. Moving on. But no, it literally sounds like that. Like this will be the place we can cultivate drivers in and then pull them up to the senior team when we're ready. Exactly. So in 2006, it was their first official year. It was a positive first season. I'm Again, I'm going to keep these short, simple. We're hitting all the years. Gerhard Berger actually became the team principal after buying stake in the team. The following year in 2007, They suffered 13 retirements in the first 10 races. And we saw Scott Speed replaced midseason for Sebastian Vettel, who finished out the season for them. The next year, 2008, Vettel took their maiden pole and victory at the Italian Grand Prix, and he scored consistently in the third part of the season to actually beat the parent team Red Bull to six in the standings. And after that, Berger sold his stake back and stepped down. In 2009, we flipped-flopped back the other way, and we finished last in the standings. So 2006 to 2009 was a period of we're figuring this out, we're judging everything, things are going to work, yada, yada, yada. Before 2010, they really were a junior team. We saw Sebastian Vettel, get started there and then move up to Red Bull. But essentially they were using the car, the Red Bull car from the previous year. So it was the Red Bull team, parent parent team, handing down the car to the junior team. I mean, Katie, their first year in 2016, they literally used the 2000 and, or not 2016, the 2006 car was the, 2005 Red Bull, and they even got to use the Cosworth 
V10 V10 engine. They got special compensation because they bought the team so late. Like it was literally so clear that it was like, and I'm presenting you your car for this year. We ran it last year. Good luck. Bye. Good luck. Okay. And we're going to steal some drivers if they perform well. (laughs) So yes, before 2010, they were a junior team. Now, 2010 is when things changed because a new rule was established. It basically stated it was a new introduction of, um, excuse me, it was a new introduction where teams had to produce a large part of the car by themselves, completely independent. So they couldn't necessarily use that hand-me-down car anymore. So it's their first true season, 2010 was their first true season as a constructor, independent from the parent team. And they finished ninth overall ahead of other new teams. 2011 was a promising season. They finished eighth and celebrated their 100th Grand Prix. In 2012, Ricardo joins the team, but the car was simply still inadequate. They were still figuring out how the fuck to even build a car because, again, they were using the hand-me-downs for the first couple of years. 2013, a little bit more solid, but unspectacular. They had a handful of top 10 finishes, and that's when we saw Daniel Ricciardo move up to Red Bull the following year. So that was his last year. 2014 was the switch from the Ferrari to the Renault engine, and they took the engine contract from Red Bull so that Red Bull could move on and not be partnered with Renault anymore. If you remember that quote from Christian Horner, we're paying to fly in first class, but we're really only flying in coach. They were unhappy with the engine, so they passed the contract over to the junior sister team. They ended up taking seventh place that year. In 2015, we had the youngest driver lineup with Verstappen and Sainz, but we saw engine reliability issues. The following year, they were regular top 10 contenders, but there was that mid-season driver swap with Daniel Kvyat moving down from Red Bull and Max Verstappen being promoted. So once again, we saw a negative thing for Daniel Kvyat and a positive thing for Max Verstappen, (laughs) which (laughs) I am so sorry for saying that. (laughs) If you don't know, read about Max Verstappen and Daniel Kvyat and their personal lives in your own personal lifetime. I apologize for throwing Daniel. Any opportunity we can. I know. We do. Because Because it still is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Okay. Let's regroup. Let's refocus. Okay. 2017. Renault Power Unit again. Ended up seventh overall. And both drivers were swapped for the introduction of Pierre Gasly. And by God, do we love a Pierre Gasly. 2018 was the move to Honda engines, which laid the groundwork again. Is this a junior team? Is this a sister team? Because they laid the groundwork for Red Bull to make the switch the following year. So test subjects, reads, junior team, not a sister team. 2019, they finished six in the standings, and that was when, again, Pierre returned from Red Bull midseason. He had his maiden podium in Brazil, as Megan mentioned earlier. Here's where it switches from Toro Rosso to Alphatari in 2020. 
It got the AlphaTauri rename, and it emerged as a true midfield force. Pierre Gasly had the maiden win in Monza, again, as Megan mentioned, and the name change itself was significant. It started a new era for the team. It no longer no longer were they call, called the little Red Bull in Italian. No longer were they this shadow of Red Bull, but they were their own dominant brand set apart from the Red Bull energy drink, even though they're still owned by the same team. More to come on this. Hint, more to come. In 2021, the following year, they landed six in the standings. We had the Pierre Gasly podium and points at almost every race he finished. And then we realized that Yuki was going to be a good add to the team. He finished in the points on his debut, became the first Japanese driver to do so. And thanks to the car's reliability and talent, they scored the most points in a single season in the history of the team at 142 for, again, P6 in the Constructors. This year, we will have to just wait and see how we finish out. I sure do hope that Pierre and Yuki can find some reliability and show us what they both have because I know they have it. Pierre more than Yuki, but you know what I mean. So let's talk, Megan. Let's throw a little discussion in there. Let's talk about do you see them as a junior team these days? Do you feel like the switch? over to AlphaTauri, made them more of a sister team. What are your thoughts on it? Well, okay. I have two kind of thoughts. I think the rule change in 2010 made it so that they were now two independent teams. That was a big moment. I think the second big moment comes with the rebrand. And a lot of people, I think rebrand has kind of a negative connotation these days. It's a Something's gone wrong, so we need to fix it. Let's give it a new name, a new look. But I do think that the intent was, I mean, Toro Rosso literally means Red Bull in Italian. So yes, AlphaTauri is their fashion brand entity that is owned by Red Bull. But by giving them a name that is, yes, still under the umbrella, but not like the same thing in a different language, I do think that is more of a, a marketing aspect, but it's a marketing aspect that's important. It it gives the appearance that they are, in fact, a separate thing. Um, at the time of the rebrand, Christian Horner did make the statement, like, they're now a sister team rather than a junior team. In terms of how the two actually function, I think, I, I, necess- I wouldn't necessarily say that they're siblings, maybe, like, aunt and nephew or uncle and niece or there is definitely a hierarchy here like red bull is the machine and alphatari is part of said machine but is maybe not necessarily their inferior but not necessarily their equal so sister isn't necessarily the right word i would use maybe i think the best way of saying it is like AlphaTauri is like a wingman to Red Bull. Yeah, I would. I like the wingman reference because wing person. they're there. Sorry, wing, wing person. person. I'm sorry, wing person. I like that thought as they're there to support. They're there to fuel. They're there to 
grow drivers up to the standings of Red Bull. They're not just going to pluck, you know, once Max Verstappen retires, if he ever retires, if he ever changes teams, they're going to need someone to come in there and do what he's doing. And to me, they are still the lesser of the two. They are still the supporting role of the two, but there is clearly separation of management, the brands themselves, and management, strategy, and the team. I mean, I fully agree with Yuki when he said last week, after the Dutch Grand Prix, when when there were so many questions on, was it a conspiracy? Did AlphaTauri put him out there to stop so that Max, look, you need an MRI. If you think that happened, because why would Red Bull throw away two championships on the Dutch Grand Prix? Stupid conspiracy idea. They would throw away two championships if they were caught. They'd be disqualified. The team would be disqualified, disgraced. It'd be a dumpster fire, just like the 2008 crash gate. So there's no chance in hell that there is a conspiracy. But... I will say that th- that there is no I do not believe in that at all but if you genuinely believe that the two are fully independent of one another in terms of the pipeline of drivers you're wrong cuz it ultimately is still Helmut Marco being a consultant to both team and playing chess maker or chess master and moving around the pieces they function independently but they have a consultant that's consulting for both that is moving the drivers back and forth based on what best suits Red Bull. That does not have anything to do with on-track strategy. And if you believe that there is a conspiracy, you're crazy. And I will say that until it comes out that there is, if there was a conspiracy. Because if Red Bull was stupid enough to conspire For that at the Dutch Grand Prix when Max is so far ahead and Red Bull is so far ahead in those championships, they're idiots. And I just can't believe it. Like, I I don't believe it. And why are we wasting our time and our breath even saying ridiculous statements like that? I think it only happened because of TV direction. Because they panned directly to... Like, the way it was set up was this, like, very dramatic thing on TV when it was weird how it unfolded. It was a bizarre set of circumstances that I fully believe is more of just like the fault of AlphaTauri than a conspiracy. But I could understand why if you were watching on TV, you could think this. Because if you go back and watch it, it literally happens, and then they pan to Red Bull celebrating. You go back and see it, and then they pan to people laughing. Okay. That's TV direction. That's not reality. Yeah, Red Bull was probably fucking laughing. They're like, sweet. We got to love that this worked in our favor. Giggle, giggle, giggle. Let me go back to drinking my water-filled Red Bull cans. Like, but I don't think, like, if they were stupid enough to do this, they deserve to be disqualified. But I don't think they were stupid enough. And if it comes out that this was a conspiracy, I will make fun of them till the day I die. On my grave, it will say Red Bull fucked up if this was a conspiracy. Because there's no chance in hell. There's no chance. There's 
It's not like they've got sat phones that aren't tracked over the radio and their helmet Marco is making a call to Yuki and Yuki's pulling out his sat phone in the vehicle to answer and say, what's up, helmet? Oh, yeah, you want me to get out? Okay, sure. Yeah, I'll get out. Like, no, I'm sorry. That's not happening. Also, it's like not. you're leading both championships. Why throw those? Why, why even away? at a .001% chance that you are caught? Why? 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 So no. End of story. They are clearly not sisters, but they're not a junior team. But there's no chance in hell that they're like having mid-race strategy to benefit Max Verstappen. That just crosses a line of insanity. That you do need an MRI. Cat scan. (laughs) I won't go as far as to say a lobotomy, but I thought it in my head. brings us to the main topic section, which I've been hinting at all episode long. If you're still here with me, thank you. You're going to have to bear with me a little longer because I might lose a few of you on this because we're going to talk about F1 and fashion, and I hope that's okay, Um, but I could talk about this for days. There's so much history. There's so many connections between the two worlds that is going to continue to grow exponentially in the next few years. And we are seeing it now. We're seeing the future of it. I read this incredibly well-written article about the Miami GP and how that has done wonders of, you know, bringing F1, again, another race in America, another tie-in, but it's the Monaco of the U.S., unfortunately. I know we don't love that statement, but Get ready next it week. Is. Get ready next week. I'm going to tell you why we should get rid of it. And I'm tune fine with that. Tune into next week's am, episode. Tune into next week's episode. But all in all, there will be another episode later down the line, more about fashion and Formula One. But let's talk about it for a brief couple of minutes here. Let me give you some background on this. The luxury auto world's interest in fashion has been high on the agenda this year in general. Luxury brands are looking at how they can capitalize and extend their brand beyond the core product. So think about Red Bull, an energy drink company that's getting into the fashion world with their own line of clothing. Or how luxury brands like Gucci, Prada, Louis Vuitton, you name it, sell lipstick for under $100. It serves as an entry point into the brand for a larger percentage of the consumers than those who can afford to buy a new Gucci purse once a year, once a month, whatever it might be. Now, car manufacturers are looking to fashion to enlarge their vision of their brand. And the trend right now is changing the approach from focusing on product-driven to brand-driven. They are working to create a lifestyle. They want people to see you driving your Mercedes and know that you live a luxurious life because it is a Mercedes. It's just like how brands have had to shift and focus more on the experience of shopping and providing the experience. It's not just coming to the store, 
to grab a shirt and check out. It's coming to the store. It's being welcomed. It's seeing digital merchandising. It's seeing how we visually merchandise. Sorry if I'm going off track. I did study no. this in school. So I, I'm I mean I I'm get excited it. to talk about this. I mean I get it. Like you you buy the Mercedes you have the Mercedes or you buy the Ferrari, you have the Ferrari, you buy the Aston Martin, you have the Aston Martin, but it goes beyond just owning that car. It's part of like a bigger lifestyle and it's Mm -hmm. fitting, looking like you fit in the car and like living, living like loyal to this idea, like the Mercedes idea and the, the efficiency, the luxury vehicle that's still like, I don't know, whatever you want to say, but it it goes beyond just like, I own the car. I drive said car. I drive the car to the grocery store. It's like, this is part of a bigger lifestyle in which I I, I live. Yeah. And I think in the world of fashion, in the world of consumerism, brands are always trying to obviously compete with each other and retain customers. And they are working to create another layer to the world that is more accessible than just the core products that they offer. So let's look at a couple of current examples on the grid. We're going to look at three. Ferrari debuted, starting with Ferrari, Ferrari debuted a line of ready-to-wear garments in June at the Milan Fashion Week for spring 2022. The goal of this was to establish Ferrari, again, as a lifestyle brand. Not only can you drive a Ferrari, but you can wear a Ferrari jacket. You can have a Ferrari bag. You can have a Ferrari briefcase. You can wear a sweater. Giving the fans a way to style this car manufacturer in other ways than just purchasing the car itself. On the other hand, Mercedes-Benz is taking a different approach to this. They consider themselves a lifestyle brand and they have considered themselves a lifestyle brand for a while now. They've been involved in the fashion industry for 27 years through brand collaborations. So they're not necessarily creating their own line, but they're working with other partners in the fashion industry to create things. Virgil, they had a line of items, of garments with Virgil Abloh that debuted right before, um, it was actually right before, right after his unfortunate passing. And so that's just an example. And customers, this is helping customers to paint a better picture of what the Mercedes lifestyle is. And they're looking to invest in a piece of design that reflects a luxury lifestyle. Not only do they want to have the Gucci bag and the Ferrari car and the Mercedes, whatever it might be, but they want to exude that lifestyle of luxury and glamour and glitz and the glitterati as... Christian Horner says it. But I also think it's a way for people like that maybe can't afford a Ferrari or they're not on the list mm-hmm. that, you know, you can't afford a Mercedes or you live in a place that you don't need a car, that you can still be a part of it. Like, A, if you can't afford it, B, you don't want the vehicle, you can still be part of said lifestyle and have like almost like a gateway into it that's more accessible. Exactly. Just how I said earlier, how, you know, the Gucci's, the Prada's, the Louis V's sell lipstick for those who that's the whole reason behind a makeup line is so that you're creating products that are more accessible to 
the, a wider audience. Same with perfume. You know, those products are labeled between 30 and and $100 that are accessible to, again, a wider audience versus the $10,000 bag, which is not accessible to everyone. You're allowing more people to be ambassadors of your brand and customers of your brand. So the only thing with Ferrari and Mercedes is that they have really yet to connect their F1 teams with their fashion products. So a new idea came to light with Red Bull's fashion line, Alphatari. The brand was created in 2016 and is now working within F1. They signed a multi-year deal to become the premium apparel supplier dressing not only the team, but also their execs and sometimes their entourages as well. Scuderia Toro Rosso rebranded the team to Scuderia Alphatari at the beginning of 2020, as I mentioned earlier. This is different from past fashion brands in Formula One because they are serving as the team name the team brand, the team identity, not just a sponsor. So another sponsor on the grid is Kappa that sponsors Alpine. Again, they're just a sponsor. The brand's material innovations itself make a motorsports partnership a good fit. So the racing team benefits from the innovative clothing while the brand receives exposure in a new light because in an industry that's hard to break into, aka like I'm talking about the luxury brand and the luxury fashion world. Alphatari's goal is to become well-known. And the interest of their brand is only fueled by the increase of interest in Formula One. For example, I had no idea Red Bull had a fashion line. I had no idea. And then they rebranded Toro Rosso to Alphatari, and I was like, what's Alphatari? Why did they get that name? Where is it coming from? What does that mean? I tell oh, it's a fashion brand. I literally challenge everyone to go ask a non-F1 fan friend of yours. Like, go find somebody. Like, my best friend, Michaela. She only, she only listens to me talk about F1 because she knows I like it. She listens to the podcast. She, like, watches races with me, whatever. But, like, go ask your non-F1 friends. Be like, hey – have you ever looked at like an Alphatari t-shirt? Do you, do you know the brand Alphatari? Ask them one of those questions and I guarantee you they've never heard of it. Never heard of it. And again, they're trying to break into a popular, competitive, really hard market to break into. They want to be a luxury brand. And they are doing that through material innovations. I'm going to talk about a couple of those in a second. They are doing that through naming a Formula One team after their brand to get excitement around it and show that if a Formula One team, the most prestigious motorsport in the world, is sponsored by this brand, then they must be at the height of luxury garments. So some of my last big point that I'm going to share is that Alphatari, the fashion brand, is innovating just as F1 innovates for everyone. So they've got a couple new material in inventions that include Tarex, which is a material that reflects energy radiating from the body back into the wearer to enhance stamina. stamina. They have a heat-storing fabric, and they have Taro brand, which is a thin, breathable, nano-engineered, waterproof membrane. So again, this is where I might lose a couple of people. I'm talking fashion, but 
these are innovations in a world where we're trying to be more sustainable, use less water. We're trying to gather the energy that's radiating from our body and bring it back to us. We are looking for innovations like this in the fashion world to keep the fashion world going, just like F1 is looking for innovations in the world of cars and motorsport to keep everyone on the roads for years to come in their regular road cars. So just as, like I said, just as Formula One engineers are creating a future for fuel-efficient electric road cars, brands such as Alphatari are also creating innovations that will be reflected in the fashion industry for years to come. And pairing those two is ingenious because they're both innovating and changing their industries. And I'll just end on this last note. Amit Mercan, the CEO of Alphatari, said, we're striving for new innovations to fulfill our ambition of fusing fashion and function. F1 is the ideal playground for material innovations. Look, if you're if you're watching the video, please look over my right shoulder. If you don't think F1 and fashion go together anymore, then you clearly don't understand what's happening. You have Lewis Hamilton, you have Zhao, Guan Yu Zhao, showing off the track looking like impeccable in designer clothing. You have Lewis Hamilton gracing the cover of Vanity Fair. You have Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc gracing the cover of GQ. It is now when the the sport is moving into this arena of not only promoting F1, promoting motorsport, but truly promoting their drivers as leaders in industries beyond that. So if you're not on board with the fusion, like you clearly have not been reading the room. Yeah. And get ready because there's going to be an episode or maybe a couple episodes if you're interested in this. I'd love to do more about fashion and Formula One because it goes back a long time and it's going to continue growing and being a part of the Formula One world for years to come. This is literally just the start. Especially because everybody's on social media now. It all, it like, and truthfully, when you think about it, like watches have always been something that's marketed in Formula One. Rolex is a massive sponsor. You have Richard Millier. Like that in itself is fashion. Yes, it is. So it's already ingrained there. It's already a part of it. It's a logical leap for me to be like high luxury vehicles, the epitome of motorsport and fashion. Like they all kind of sit in this like luxury goods sector that has a massive audience. And so why not capture it? It does make me laugh that Jack Daniels is now going to be an official sponsor of McLaren. It's like I did see luxury, Alphatari fashion, Rolex, Richard Milliate. Jack Daniels is going to be a sponsor of Jack McLaren. Daniels. Roger, hey, we now know your favorite team. <laughs> Mom and Dad have now featured in this episode. <laughs> They're going to love it. Okay. Like always, we have to wrap up our deep dive episode with why you should be a fan person of the team. So, Katie, lead us off. Okay, number one, no question. I'm ready to say it for the whole entire world. Yuki and Pierre, the bromance. Giuseppe Yuki. It's chef's kiss. 
it's chef's kiss. It's giving healthy, loving, caring, supportive. It is giving me good energy. Every time I see them together, the video of Yuki running to catch up to Pierre. Mm, I love it. I love them. I love them. Sorry, Carlando, you've been overthrown. You have been overthrown. It's over. Number two, for better or for worse, they are a proven testing ground for some of the top drivers we have on the grid currently. Vettel, Ricardo, Sainz, Verstappen, Gasly, Albon. Am I missing anyone? Daniel Kvyat. He's not on the grid. Not. Oh, sorry. Not right now. Sorry. Sorry. My bad. I apologize. I just was trying to throw him a bone. No, we've already roasted him, Katie. <laughs> Ship sailed. Gone. Ship sailed. All right. I'll beyond the horizon. Beyond the horizon. All right. Number three. It's. You guys know I'm going to say this. F1 fashion, the fusion, the excitement. I'm literally wearing their merch right now. I know I've already said that, but it's beautiful. Like, it's it's gorgeous. It's the future of what we're going to see. It's amazing. And honestly, if you haven't seen the photos of Yuki and Pierre visiting the store in Austria, you're doing something wrong and go find them on the internet. The sweater go Pierre wore, them. incredible. The yellow and cream outfit Yuki wore, Iconic. Incredible. And lastly, number four is that they add to the midfield battle, and I love them fighting in the midfield. Would I like them to be higher up? Yes, but they are a solid midfield contender, and I do enjoy them in the tussle, in the fight, having wheel-to-wheel battles. I do enjoy watching that aspect of the races, and I really do love to celebrate when they find themselves sitting in, like, P6, P4, P7. Occasionally winning 2020 Monza. If you haven't gone back and rewatched that race, please do. I watched it on Saturday and it was two and a half hours of pure joy for me. I mean, some of it was not so great, you know, like when Lewis Hamilton had the 10 second penalty. But nonetheless, I did find joy in seeing Pierre on the podium. It's one more weekend until it's time to go back racing. Join us next week for some more F1 content. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us at Dirty Driving Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, stay dirty.